I'd like to invite Pastor Adrian Dieleman to bring the word to us this morning. Good morning, first of all. And it's nice to be here. I was told about you folks, and you were described as being friendly, as being welcoming, and to be absolutely de delightful to be around. And so far, those words have shown themselves to be true. So. Um, one little item of concern, I don't see a clock, so if the minister is a little long, it's because you don't have a clock. <laughs> Let's go to God our Father in a moment of prayer. Almighty God and Father, we come to you and you have spoken to us. You have given us your word and you have given us Christ, and now as we open scripture, may our hearts be attentive and our ears be listening and may our minds be touched. In the name of Jesus, amen. Revelation chapter 2 is our scripture reading. Revelation chapter 2. And we'll be reading the first seven verses. Revelation 2 verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. My brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, I was reading a report a report to the churches, a report about churches. And the writer sounded so smug, so self-righteous, as if he had the answer to all the problems that plagues the church today. He was quick to condemn, quick to accuse, 
quick to lay blame as he looked at the different churches. But he also took the time to praise the things that he liked. But now a bit of a confession. The writer was not speaking about the PCA or the United Reformed Churches or the Christian Reformed Church or any of the other churches that we might be personally acquainted with. Rather, he was talking about another time and another place. Not the 21st century or the 20th century. He was Jesus. And he was talking about the churches of Asia Minor, seven letters to seven churches. We'll be looking at the first letter today. Jesus talking about the state of the church in the first century. Now our day, our time, and our churches as we look at this letter in front of us, and as you look at the other letters, sounds exactly the same as what John faced. John is the author, the human author of Revelation. And we need to realize that this is God's plan and God's method and God's intention. God deliberately inspired John with his Holy Spirit to write a letter that's applicable to all times, all places, all churches, and all peoples. So notice what is said. Let him who has ears to hear hear what the Spirit says to who? The churches. The churches, plural. Not just the seven churches of Asia Minor, but the church of all times and all places, all ages. And even though each one of the letters is addressed to a specific church in a specific locale with specific problems, I want you to leave here this morning realizing that through John, Jesus is also speaking to you and to me and the church of which we are a part. Realize also that, as I have mentioned, there are seven letters to seven churches. In the Bible, seven is the number of completion, the number of perfection. So nailing down again, this is a message for all of us of all times and all places. And so what we have in front of us this morning, the struggle of those churches of Asia Minor, is the same struggles that we have. Their weaknesses are our weaknesses. Their temptations are the same temptations that we face. So be assured again, Jesus is speaking to us. Now he says to John, write to the angel of the churches, or the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was the predominant and the preeminent city 
of the province of Asia in the Roman Empire. Ephesus was also the city that was closest to where John was exiled. You might know, you might remember, John was exiled to the island of Patmos. And this was the first church, the church that was closest to him. As I said, the greatest city of the Roman province of Asia, a free city granted by Rome the right to self-rule. And it was rather impressive. It had a stadium that could seat 25,000 people. It had a marketplace that was renowned. It had a theater that people flocked to. And going from the harbor into the heart of the city was a boulevard, 35 feet wide, paved with stones back then, which was unusual, lined with columns. It was prosperous, it was rich, it was wealthy. Now from the book of Acts, you might remember something else that was in Ephesus. There was a temple there, a pagan temple to Artemis, or also called Diana, the goddess of fertility. And people from all over the empire flocked to Ephesus to worship at this temple. They came with their offerings. And that temple and that city became very, very rich because of this. And not only did they have all of these offerings, they decided it was too much, and they entered the lending business. They became a bank, this temple of Diana, and got even more money because of that. The Christian faith first came to Ephesus through the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila around the year A.D. 52. And Paul, he was on his way to Corinth. He was on his way to Antioch, and eventually he hoped to Rome. And he dropped Priscilla and Aquila off there in Ephesus to do some ministry. And shortly after they came, Apollos arrived. You might recognize his name, too, from the book of Acts. And he assisted them, Priscilla and Aquila, in their ministry. On his third missionary journey, Paul stopped off at Ephesus, and he spent more time there than in any other church that he ministered to or that he was used by the Spirit to start and to develop. Two and a half years, maybe even three years. And because he was there teaching, praying, supporting, encouraging, fighting against evil and wickedness and heresy, this church was very, very well grounded in the faith. Now these are the words we are told, not just of John, even especially not of John. The words of him, we are told in verse 1, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's Jesus talking. And if you were to look back to Revelation chapter 1, 
You see a picture there of Christ, a picture of Christ that is awesome and magnificent. John starts off describing him, and then Jesus describes himself. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now the stars and the lampstands both represent the church, and Jesus holds the seven stars. That shows his power. That shows his might. And he walks among the golden lampstands. He is with the church. He dwells in her. He lives in her. He communes with her. And so Jesus, who holds up the church, who lives in the church, he knows exactly what he is talking about. He knows exactly what needs to be done and what exactly needs to be said. And I want you to observe with me that Jesus calls the church a lampstand. Notice what he doesn't call it. He doesn't say it's the light. Because who is the light? It's Christ. The church is a lampstand. Her job is to hold up to the world to each other, to our children, to the next generation, the light of Christ. Every church is called to be a lampstand. But so many, I'm afraid today, no longer are lampstands. They don't hold up the light of Christ. Instead, they hold up another kind of gospel, a gospel that's related to works or a gospel related to social justice or a gospel that's just emphasizing community and fellowship and love. The church is called to be a lampstand, holding aloft the glorious and brilliant light of Christ. Now Jesus, who lives in the church, who walks among the church, who holds up the church, has positive words and negative words to say to the Ephesian church. First, words of praise. As the one who walks and lives in the church, he says, I know your works. And then he describes them. Your toil and patient endurance. I know your works. He's pleased with them. That's what the Greek indicates. Their work, of course, what kind? Work for the church, work for the Lord, work for the kingdom. I know your works, your toil. In other words, no matter how hard it might be, no matter how difficult it may be, no, long how, no matter how long it may take, I know it, I approve it, and your patient endurance, you keep going. You don't give up. You endure. Now this is a church that lived in that wicked and evil city of Ephesus, surrounded by all those unbelievers worshiping at the temple of Artemis or Diana. And there was a Jewish synagogue too. And if you remember from the book of Acts, that Jewish synagogue resisted Paul and they resisted the church and the faith and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know your works. 
your toil and your patient endurance. In the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, you stick with the faith. And I know, says Jesus, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. And then he describes them. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Now, this is an absolutely wonderful thing to hear. We need to go back to the book of Acts, and you remember the Apostle Paul after his longest time of ministry there, after the two and a half or three years, he gathered the elders and the church together, and he said farewell to them. And he warned them. He warned the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, and actually even before he departed, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And so Jesus praises this church. You watched for the wolves. I warned you about that. You watched for the wolves. You watched for the false teachers. You tested those who claimed to be apostles. Someone would show up in the church, say, yeah, I got sent by Jerusalem. I am one of the apostles together with Andrew and James and Peter and so on. And they would test them. How? Well, led by the Spirit, of course. But they would listen carefully to what they said and they would compare it to the gospel that they had heard from Paul. They tested, hey, you are false. That's not the truth that you are preaching. It's another kind of a gospel, not a true gospel. And another thing, this you also have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the Nicolaitans are a bit of a mystery to us. We don't know very much about them, but what we do know is this. When you face stressful situations, conflict with the world, the Nicolaitans would say, well, just compromise, just give in a little bit. Go with the flow. Try not to buck the tide, try not to create trouble. Just go along to get along. The Ephesian church hated that. They hated the thought of that. And so the Lord of the church, the one who holds them up, the one who lives in them, he praises them for sticking to their principles, for holding fast to their convictions, for not compromising their beliefs. Let me put it this way, if I were to describe that church of Ephesus back then. They knew their Bible. They knew their catechism. They knew their theology. 
They knew the great truths of the Reformation before the Reformation. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, the Bible alone, God's glory alone. This church knew what a heretic looked like and sounded like. You weren't going to fool this church with some off-the-wall teaching. You know what that church of Ephesus sounds like? Sounds like what I was told about you. A church that knows her Bible and her theology and her catechism. But now a word of criticism. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Hear what Paul says there? Or Jesus, uh, pardon me. He talks about the first love that Ephesus had. Remember your first love as a guy or as a girl? That guy or girl that you had a crush on? And you would give almost anything back then to have them notice you or blessing of all blessings kiss you. The church of Ephesus had a first love. You know who it was? It was Jesus. And Paul prayed about that first love in his opening in Ephesians chapter 3, what he wrote to that church of Ephesus. He wrote, he writes, you being rooted and grounded in love, I pray that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He prays they have that love and they keep that love. And they must have, that prayer must have been heard and answered because Ephesians ends with this, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Or we can say with love undying. Ephesus is founded by Paul through the spirit. We're in love, madly in love with Jesus. And because of that love, we're willing to do anything for Jesus. That was Ephesus. That was the church as founded by Paul by the operation of the Spirit. But now John is writing 25 years later. And through John, Jesus says, with sorrow and with pain, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, abandon applies a willful decision, a willful act. It wasn't accidental. 
It wasn't something that they accidentally slipped into. You have abandoned me deliberately. You have forsaken me. Love for Jesus was no longer the first thing, the best thing, or the most important thing. Now what happened? Let's go back to what is said about that church in this letter. Remember what I said about them? They were orthodox, biblical. They knew their Bible. They knew their catechism. They knew wrong and false theology. They could discern who was and was not a false or a true apostle. They saw right through the Nicolaitans. They were orthodox. But in striving for purity, and striving to be biblical, and striving to be true, they forgot what was most important. Truth became more important than love, than love for Jesus. The great truths of the Reformation became more important than loving Jesus. Christ alone and grace alone and faith alone and the Bible alone and God's glory alone became more important than loving Jesus first. And when a church is no longer centered on Christ. When a church loves anything or anyone more than Christ, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Do you think, my brothers and sisters, Jesus has reason to say these words to us? Have we perhaps forsaken our first love? Is there anything in our life or in the life of this church which is more important than Jesus? This building, perhaps, the organ? Youth ministry, the pastor or former pastor, prayer, Bible reading, the sacraments, worship. I trust you all know and realize why Jesus needs to be our first love. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning, and that points us to why. Jesus should come first. He loved us. And we can love only because he first loved us. He loved us on the cross and in the grave. He loved us to death, literally his death. 
He loved us so much, he was willing to be punished for our sins, to die for our sins. He loved us so much, he was willing to be persecuted and betrayed and arrested and whipped and crucified and killed. And because he first loved us, we're called to love him first above anything and anyone else but Ephesus. Ephesus has fallen, fallen from her first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. That word fallen indicates that they had been on the heights. They were soaring, floating, flying high with their love for Jesus and his love for them. But they have fallen. Repent! Repent in the Bible does not mean feel bad, though that might be part of it. It means to change. To turn around. To turn over a new leaf. Go back to loving me first. Go back to loving me above anything or anyone else. And then a warning, if you do not repent, if you do not change, if you do not go back to me as your first love, I'm going to do something absolutely awful. I'm going to take your lampstand and remove it from its place. Now remember, the church is called to be a lampstand, to hold the loft, the light of Christ. And if that lampstand is removed, guess what the church is? She's not church anymore. She's not doing what God has called her to do, what the Spirit wants her to do. She's not holding out to a desperately lost and sin mankind the gospel of grace and salvation. I'm no longer going to live on in your midst, he is saying. I'm no longer going to walk with you and talk with you. I'm no longer going to have fellowship with you. I'm going to remove your lampstand if you don't repent. And remember, those words are not just meant for Ephesus. They're meant for us, too. If we, as either individuals or as a church, lose our love for Christ, we're going to stop being the church of Christ. And don't think it can't happen. Those who studied church history for the last century or so tell us it takes only one generation. It takes only 25 years 
for a church that is true and orthodox and pure and holy to lose her way. That's why we are told, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now we can't end this way because Jesus does not end this way. He offers us a blessing if we listen to him. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who repents. They get to eat of the tree of life. Now remember that tree of life? We come across it already in the Garden of Eden. And if man ate from that tree of life, Adam and Eve, they would have lived forever. But then they fell into sin. They were banished from the garden. They were actually banished from the tree of life. So that man, sinful man, cannot eat of it and live forever. They were banished from the tree of life. Adam and Eve failed. Ephesus and all the other churches of Asia Minor and every church ever, in fact, fails. And so we admit this morning we are no better than Ephesus. But Jesus says, if you repent, if you believe in me, if you hold me above anything and everyone else, in spite of sins and failings in your life, you get to eat from the tree of life and live forever. By faith. Just like by faith, we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so I say to you, may we cling to Christ. May he always be our first love. And may God grant us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that we may hear what you say to the churches, what you say to us. We pray that we may love you with a love that's greater than a love for anything or anyone else. Because you, O oh Lord, have loved us first. In your precious name we pray this. Amen.